Man, good morning, Sycamore View. It's great to see those of you who are in person today. I want to thank all those who are joining us online. Thank you for uh, being with us. One of our core values, and we've launched eight core values. We launched these back in May. You can find them on our website, sycamoreview.org, under the About page. And one of the core values that we focused on and that we have prayed through today is a core value that we are passionate about connecting people to God. We're passionate about connecting people who are disconnected from God or disconnected from faith or maybe they're over-churched or they're under-churched or whatever reason that they are disconnected, we want to be passionate about that. There's a prayer I've been praying for years in my own life, for a few years, that God would give me a burden for lost people, a burden for people who are disconnected from God or the church or faith. And it's a prayer request. I make sure that every time our leaders meet every month, this is a prayer request that the leaders pray through, is that God would give this church, that God would give our leaders a burden for people who were disconnected from God. When you see the way the early church prayed, so in the book of Acts or throughout the New Testament, when you see the early church coming together and how they cried out to God and what they prayed for, they didn't spend time praying for safety and health and wealth, though those things can be so important. I think God wants us to be healthy. I think God wants us to to be safe. I think God cares about protection and security. But when you see the way the early church prayed, it was they came together to cry out to God that God would draw people close to God and that God would just inspire and energize the church to be a witness to God's faithfulness everywhere they went, no matter what. So as a church, I want us to do better. I hope we will continue to grow to do better to cultivate healthier marriages and to help parents know how to care for kids and to help people grow in their own relationships with God. But I also hope as a church that we will always know that God has called the church to live for something greater than itself. That we're not called just to be insulated and for Christians only care about Christians and those who think like us, pray like us, vote like us, but that God would call the church to live and exist for the world, for the sake of the world. Uh, this past week, my family and I, we disengaged. We uh, took a week of vacation. We went to Texas. It was our boys' fall break. We uh, hung out with family for about five days. We saw a few friends, and we got to eat a bunch of Texas stuff. I mean, authentic Mexican food brisket multiple times. If I'm in Memphis, I don't do brisket. I do pork. If I'm in Texas, I eat a bunch of brisket. Uh, Whataburger, Dairy Queen, Texas Burger. For six days, I did not have a vegetable unless lettuce on a hamburger or Whataburger counts. And my body was like screaming at me, dude, you are not 25 years anymore. Like cream gravy, you can't live on cream gravy alone. And I, and I joked that I, I would sit there to pray before, over a meal before some of the stuff I was eating, steak finger baskets, asking God to bless this to the nourishment of my body. <laughs> Having a thought that the angels are looking at God like, can you do that? Are you able to, to do what this, this man is requesting for you to do? And there's so many things I ate over this past week that I knew before I ate them, I was going to regret it 90 minutes later. But can we just confess that there's some foods that you know you're going to ache, but it is so worth it. And that's, that's how it was. Now, here's the thing. A week and a half ago, I spent time with a few ministers. I have a, a trip every year that I meet up with ministers, and we decided to go ahead and do it this year. It was a smaller group. We met in a large place, and these are ministers from across the United States. And then last week, I spoke at my dad's church, and I also got to sit with the elders and the leaders and the missions committee at their church and just talk about the kingdom of God. So I've immersed myself in a lot of kingdom conversations over the last week and a half. And, the, and, and there's a thread that runs through every church leader, every preacher, everyone I've talked to last week and a half, is that we all agree we're living in really strange times. 
Like this has been a year of so much uncertainty. None of us saw this coming and, and we're all trying to navigate this. And as I sat in front of a missions committee and a leadership last Saturday before I preached at a church on Sunday, they were, it was just, they just put me up in front of the group and they just wanted to have conversations about the kingdom of God and they were asking me questions about social unrest and how do you help a church navigate a political season and, and asking me questions about racism and, and do I or how do you differentiate between Black Lives Matter organization and saying Black Lives Matter, believing Black Lives Matter and all these conversations that everybody finds themselves in. This is a strange time. And you show up at church and there are those who want to hear you talk about social unrest and political unrest. And then there are those who show up at church and they want that to be a safe place where they don't have to think about it or talk about it or their kids to hear about it. And we're, we're here trying to, trying to navigate just a crazy year and a crazy, crazy time. And here are a few things I believe. I shared these last week. I share them today. No matter what happens through COVID-19 or through this political season, God is not on the line. And anybody who tries to suggest that God is on the line, they're just wrong. And the local global church is not on the line right now. When Jesus launched the church in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the movement called the church. And anybody who suggests that the church is on the line, they're wrong. But here's what is on the line, is that Christian witness is on the line every single day. Christian witness of how we behave and how we interact, and when we choose to become keyboard warriors on social media, this is our personal Christian witness is on the line every single day. And Jesus calls the church to be a witness to his faithfulness. Now, we're in a season right now. We do this every day, every October in the life of this church. So if you're a guest here today or you're a guest online, every October we highlight some of our 316 efforts. We have missionaries and mission efforts throughout the world, and we highlight those, and we take up an offering. And earlier this year, in the spring, we had an offering, the 901 offering, a lot of our strategic partners right here in the Mid-South, and we surpass that offering. And over the next week, we're giving to a 316 offering, and I want to believe in faith that we're going to surpass this offering and the way I want to couch this to the church, so some of you may have already decided what you want to give to the 316 offering. Some of you may be undecided or you haven't put a lot of thought into it yet. Because logic says, and some of your personal advisors, financial advisors would say, this is probably a good time to play it safe because you don't know what's going to happen at the end of 2020 or into 2021. Yet I want this to be a year that as a witness, that we can witness to our children and our grandchildren that in this year we refuse to play it safe. We refuse just to sit back, but we acted and we moved forward in great faith. With that said, my wife and I, Casey and I, have had a certain number that we've given to the 316 offering for a number of years. And this year, we're going to increase that by 20% because we just want to, we want to believe for great things right now. And I ask you, whatever the number is that you plan to give, that you lay that before God and you say, God, is this the right number? And there may be a, God may respond with, that's it. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And God may respond with, that's not enough. You have, there, there's more in you to give. We have a chance to be a witness. The reason I'm in 1 Peter right now, the reason, reason we're in a nine-week series on 1 Peter is I think Peter was writing 1 Peter. He did write to five provinces, and he's writing, reminding people of their identity in God, their commitment to Jesus, and he's writing to remind them of the witness they have in the world. You are called to be witnesses. 
So last year, last fall, I believe God led me to preach through 1 Peter during this political season, not even knowing we'd be dealing with something called coronavirus, to help equip the church of what our identity is, what it means to be committed, and what it means to live out our faithfulness no matter what. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and I preached on this a couple of weeks ago, and we've called this series Resident Strangers, what it means to be strange in the world. And 1 Peter begins with him saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus... And he tells people, you are chosen strangers. The only time in the Bible those two words are found next to each other. You are chosen by God. You are the elect. You were chosen by God. And you were strange. Now, when Peter uses this word strange, which became an identifying mark for the church, years later, people were, the, there were Christians who knew themselves. They knew that they were called to be strangers in the world. That this is not about vertical separation from God. This is not about this world. It's not my home. I'm just passing through. I think Peter was calling people to rise above the things you see in the world, but know that God calls you to care for this world. This is not a warm-up exercise for eternity. Every single day, how we worship, how we pray, how we live, how we interact with other people, salvation and eternity is on the line. Today, how we worship and how we live, it matters. And Peter's calling people to be strange in a sense that all around you is social pressure, and you are called to be committed and faithful. So think about this. There were people in these provinces who were living in small rural areas. If you grew up in a small rural area, you know that everybody knows everybody. You know their stuff. You know their family. You know their jobs. You probably see them on a regular basis. And if you became a Christian in one of these five provinces, the, the, it, they're really good, there's a really good chance you either became a Christian and you left the life of Judaism or you left the life of paganism. And now you live in a small rural area where everybody knows everybody and you have Jewish family and Jewish friends and coworkers who don't understand why you won't do the things with the Jews you used to do. Or you have a bunch of pagan friends who don't understand why you won't do the things you used to do with all of them. And there's social pressure, social consequences, maybe economic consequences that people had faced. Now, here's the thing. I bet most of you here in this room today and watching online, when you surrendered your life to Jesus, when you confessed Jesus as the Lord of your life, when you were baptized, you were probably met with a lot of applause and encouragement and hugs and congratulations I mean, when we go pick our boys up at church camp and we get a witness baptisms at church camp, the last day of church camp, all these people either in the swimming pool or around the swimming pool, and with everyone who is baptized into Christ, the joy and the excitement and the applause is there. And maybe, there, maybe there's someone in the room or watching online today that when you were baptized into Christ, you weren't met with a lot of encouragement. Maybe there was someone or or group of people in your life who were saying, we can't believe you did this. I mean, today, there are going to be people who surrender their lives to Jesus in baptism in the Middle East and Africa, places in Asia, and they're going to come out of the water, and there will be relationships that will be gone. There may be physical persecution, and there will be social consequences, and maybe even economic consequences, because people don't get their new way of life, and they're not going to go along with it, and there's pressure. So what does it mean? For us to remain committed to God when there's pressure in life, pressure from society. I was a part of a group a few years ago where there was a man that we had been studying with, praying with, trying to lead this man to, to Christ. And, 
And as he got closer and closer to making a decision for, a decision for Jesus, his wife wasn't having any of it. She was upset. I mean, all of her life, most of her life, the Christians she had seen in her life were Christians who did not represent Christ very well. And she did not want her husband to become one. And then the night he was baptized into Christ, he didn't tell her about the decision until he got home. And he went home and he told her he'd been baptized into Christ and she was livid. She had asked him not to do this. The first thing she did is she slammed a door. And when she slammed the door, there were picture frames that fell off the wall. She told him she wanted a divorce. But much like 1 Peter, especially 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter's writing to these wives whose husbands hadn't become Christians, telling them to live a life. You stay committed to good deeds because your commitment to good deeds, you may just help win your spouse to Jesus. By doing that, this man, a couple of years later, his wife ended up surrendering her life to Jesus. So let's go deeper into 1 Peter. There are times that I work us through a passage in Scripture, and I'm going to work us through 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9. And there are times where I just hope there's something that sticks. And then there are times I hope that you will experience the Word of God, that you will go home today and you will say to yourself, I have got to go back and read verse 3 through 9, because there was so much in there and so much I need in my life that this can be a word of encouragement and inspiration for you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and I just I want to slowly work us through a couple of verses at a time this morning. Here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and His great mercy. And I want to encourage you like I did early service. If you write in your Bible, if you underline, star, circle things, highlight and circle in his great mercy, in God's great mercy. It's God's decision. God, is not, God does not hoard God's good gifts. God dispenses his gifts in God's mercy. God has given us, and I love this phrase, new birth into a living hope. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. When it comes to God, God isn't just a God who gives second chances or third chances. God is a God who gives new birth, like a whole new way of life. This is what baptism has meant to people for 2,000 years, is that when they go into the water and they come out of the water, there is a new birth. There is a new way to live. And, this, and, and what Peter talks about is this is a new birth into a living hope. Not just a, it's not just wishful thinking. It is hope that comes with anticipation. It is this living hope. It is a hope that is breathing and moving and has legs and arms. It's, it's living. It's a living thing, this living hope. And this is all because of God's great mercy. In verse 4, it says, into an inheritance. And then the second part is, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This word inheritance shows up two different times here. There is this inheritance that is given to you by God. An inheritance is not something you interview for. An inheritance is not yours just because you're entitled. Someone has made a choice to give you an inheritance. An inheritance is given by those who either have the power or the authority that is greater than yourself. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we all could write an inheritance for our parents or grandparents for ourselves? Because mine would go something like this. I'd be like, Mom and Dad, look, I know when it comes down to you putting together your will and whatever the inheritance is going to look like, I just need to remind you of a few things that Jonathan, my brother, did earlier in life. I've been keeping a list of them. And I just wanted you to know, there are times he rebelled against you. Like he, 
he blatantly disobeyed. And I think this should probably change how that inheritance goes. Like something like that. But it's not how it goes. When it comes to inheritance, God gives an inheritance. It's not that we interviewed for God's inheritance because we thought we were worthy. It's not that we get something about God, from God's inheritance because we deserve it. This is because of God. It's because God doesn't hoard God's good gifts, good, his good gifts. God dispenses, God gives. This is God's inheritance. And what you read in verse 4 and 5 is that this is an inheritance that is protected by heaven. The powers of heaven are protecting the inheritance because of Jesus' faithfulness, because of your faithfulness. Your inheritance is protected, and there's nothing that the powers of hell can do. In verse 6, it says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, which some of you read that and you're like, that's what I'm living right now. I've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith or faithfulness of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And I love this image of you being pressed, yet staying faithful. Of you being squeezed, yet remaining obedient to God no matter what. Of you uh, being, uh, of experiencing suffering in your life, but there's faithfulness and there's obedience and, there, and you're unshaken. Now, Peter talks a few different times throughout First Peter where he will say stuff to those who are suffering, whether it's a wife who may be suffering because a husband's not a Christian or slaves who are suffering because they're slaves. And he'll tell people, hey, look, Jesus suffered too. And because Jesus suffered too, Jesus understands what you're going through and Jesus can help you get through this. And I think there's some of you that need to hear that today. You are suffering, you are in pain, and what you need to know is Jesus has been there. And Jesus cares, and Jesus isn't going to leave you alone. Now, this is not a message that I would give to, to, to a spouse who's in an abusive marriage where there may be sexual abuse or physical abuse. I'm not just going to tell people, hey, just hang in there, and maybe Jesus will get you through. I mean, there are times where we have to stand up against the oppressors in life. Now, Peter's reminder throughout 1 Peter is that where you find yourself right now, he's writing to these people in these provinces, the social pressure you find yourself experiencing I am calling you, commit yourself to God's identity and faithfulness to God no matter what. And Peter believes that when we do this, that evangelism happens. A commitment to the goodness of God will lead even our oppressors. Sooner or later, we'll even lead them to God. Now this is what Peter does throughout 1 Peter. He's trying to help change people's mindset, like how they think, how they think about faith, how they think about life, how they think about other people. And I believe this to be true. This is what I want for my kids. It's what, what I want as a minister at this church is I want to help change the way people think. I want to help change mindsets because if mindsets are changed, behavior will change too. I don't think behavior changes and then mindset follows. I think mindsets change and behavior follows. And Peter knows if I can change mindset to where people devote themselves to life in the kingdom of God, their behavior is going to reflect like a mindset that's been given over to God. In verse 8, it says this, Though you have not seen him, and I love this, especially for those who struggle with doubts, I love this, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him right now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy 
For you are receiving. You are receiving the end result of your faithfulness. Now, don't think it's just the end result of your faith. It's not just the end result of your belief system. It's the end result of your faithfulness. Your faithfulness, your commitment to God. The salvation of your souls. Right. And I don't think the way this works is that you're in the process of receiving your salvation because it hasn't come in fullness yet. I don't think that's it. I think salvation has come in and through Jesus. And we get to experience it and our, our identity has changed. And now God is helping to, to implement the power and the beauty of that salvation in our lives. You are in the process right now of receiving the fullness of everything that comes with what it means to be a saved person. You and the church, we get to receive this. We're in the process of receiving this right now. And because of this, salvation is more than heaven. And by saying it's more than heaven, I'm not minimizing what eternity in heaven is going to be like. If anything, I want to elevate what Jesus means when Jesus said things like, your kingdom come right here on earth as it is in heaven. That our forever future is meant to totally transform how we live everyday life. That as believers in Jesus, as those who have been baptized into Christ, those who have given our lives to Christ, that we are not called to be bashful or fearful or cross our fingers, hoping that in the end God is merciful and gracious. But that we are called to know that God is gracious and merciful that there's a salvation and an eternity for us. And because of that, we are called right now to think different, live different, behave different. In chapter 2, what Peter says is this in verse 2 and 3. Like newborn babies, you need to crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter talks about receiving a salvation. You are receiving it. And he talks about growing up in your salvation this is a call of the church. Like You continue to grow into what it means to be a person who is set on fire by God. And if I had to summarize 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, and some of these truths live out in the rest of 1 Peter, it would be this. There are four things. This is, this is our incredible, gracious, merciful God. And this is who you are. And this is what our future is. And this is what it means to live right now. This is our incredible, gracious merciful, amazing God. That God in his mercy has given salvation in an inheritance. This is who you are. That because of God's great mercy, we have been given a new identity, a new living hope. This is our future, that there is a salvation, a life that will be ours forever. And because of that, we get to live differently right now as witnesses of God. Now last fall, when I started studying First Peter, almost every week of my life, no matter what else I was preaching or what else I was doing, knowing that I was doing a nine-week series, one of the reasons I kept coming back to First Peter is because I think what Peter has to say in First Peter is so relevant and prevalent for the times we're living in right now. That Peter isn't just writing to people, trying to convince them of status change, and you're no longer unsaved, now you're saved. He's not just writing to a church to stay in their little bubble. He's writing to people, calling them to know what your identity is, what your commitment is, and what it means to be a witness where you live, even when there may be pressure that comes with it. And I think something Peter would say to the churches in these provinces is the same thing that I and maybe even Peter would want to say to the church today. 
And it said, as we continue to navigate the times we're in, you need to know this. People are watching. People are watching you. Now, we behave in obedience to God because of who God is, but we also behave because people are watching what we do. Your kids are watching you. Your grandkids are watching you. Like People are watching us, whether it's on social media or in life. If people know you were a follower of Jesus, they're watching you. Now, 2,000 years ago, what was happening is you had people in these churches who, who Peter's saying, hey, people are watching you because people are watching them to see. You've committed your life to Jesus, and now we're watching to see. You have a, a moral lapse, to have a character flaw, so that they can point out your inconsistencies. And people are watching us to see what kind of witness do you have in your life right now. And we can blow it so easily, right? Justine Lee was a woman. She's, uh, she was, uh, four years ago, she worked in marketing out in San Francisco, the Bay Area. And she just got, she was so disoriented and just distraught, almost depressed coming out of the 2016 election. The day after the election, November of 2016, she decided she wanted to do something different. And she wanted to do something different that could bring people from different social places and political places together for the sake of conversation. She she knew that there are a lot of places in our society in the United States where you can go, where you can debate each other politically or about social things, and and you could even fight about them. Uh, But she wanted a place where people could come for the main purpose of listening so that there could be some empathy. Now, I have no clue how this woman, Justine Lee, I have no clue how she voted. I just know she was fed up because leading up to that election in 2016, Hillary Clinton had just called nearly half of Americans deplorables. And you had Donald Trump who had mocking nicknames for anybody who stood in his path. And she was frustrated by the whole thing. So the day after the election, she launched this nonprofit that it was called MADA, with a D, not a G. MADA, Make America a Dinner Again. And her goal was to have dinner groups of six to ten people who were strategically put together from different social and political places to come together for the, to, to eat a dinner and to have conversations. There would be a moderator, there would be rules you would play by, but you were coming to listen and so that we all could grow in empathy. So she launched these. And they worked. People grew to a greater understanding and appreciation for each other. So then other cities began doing the same thing. And then it even went overseas where you had a member of the parliament in UK who held a MATA Make America Dinner Again uh, dinner in the UK for people who were dealing with the whole Brexit thing. He brought, the people, he brought people together who were from the Leave Party and the Stay Party to come together for dinner for the sake of understanding each other better. You even had Glenn Beck, a conservative voice in our culture, a divisive conservative voice, who I've heard off record and behind the camera is a very kind, more inclusive man, but very divisive figure who he heard about MADA. And Glenn Beck got involved to the point that he co-hosted one of his conservative shows with an openly gay man. And there he put together a dinner with people who came from all different places. And Glenn Beck is on the record saying it was at that dinner that he learned that there are those who you think are your adversaries, that when you eat with them, you realize they're just another person at dinner with you. That you, you have a, an appreciation for people that 
They're human beings. And there's a man named Eugene Cho. He's a pastor up in the Northwest. He's well-known, a well-known author, well-known speaker. And Eugene Cho doesn't really fit with those who politically write because he presses people on some social issues. And he also doesn't fit with those who find themselves politically left because he believes in a pro-life ethic from the womb to the tomb. He holds a more traditional view on marriage. And I mean, and he's, he has a kind of platform and following that there are those who, I mean, he's had death threats come at him because of his, some of his convictions about things. And he wrote about his own experience going to a MATA, Make America Dinner Again, party. He didn't know what to expect when he showed up. And when he went to his group, he found that in there was a public school teacher in the Northwest who was more conservative. There was a nonprofit director. There was a receptionist. Uh, He had a college student who was in there. And he could tell within just a few minutes that around that table were people who politically were all over the place. And that night, they discussed abortion and immigration and the environment and the economy and global poverty. They discussed everything. And the commonality that they all had for each other that they discovered fairly quickly that night, the commonality is that they were all frustrated with the political landscape. And they wanted something better. And that night when they finished dinner, they didn't solve global poverty or the environment or immigration. They didn't solve a lot of the issues that a lot of us would love to be solved in some way. They didn't solve them, but they left with greater empathy and a greater understanding of people because meals are supposed to do that. Peter's writing to a bunch of churches, reminding them of their identity and their commitment. And I don't, think if there's, I don't think there's a better place for us to go to as a church right now than the table, a meal that we take every week that is something that connects us to sisters and brothers in Christ all over the world. A meal that reminds us that Jesus didn't just do something for you, though, though you're a part of it. He did something to bring all people together. And it's a meal that calls us to let go of hatred and division, and to commit ourselves to a life of following Jesus in the way we think and what we allow in our hearts and how we behave in the world. So I invite you here in this place, if you want to go ahead and get the bread in the cup, and for those of you online at home, if you have communion close to you, I ask you to, to go and get that. If you're here in person today and you are in need of prayer, we have an elder who will be outside these doors in a room to your right to receive you after this worship service. And if you're in person or online, we have a connect card and we invite you to go to that connect card. There are boxes you can check. There's a place you can leave a prayer request. And we take those very seriously and we invite you to do that. And right now I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Maybe open your hands where you are and let's pray. Jesus, you have changed everything. In this meal today, through this bread and this cup, through your sacrifice, remind us of our identity and our commitment. I ask right now in this place, God, that hatred will fall to the ground, that division will fall to the ground, and that you, through your great power, reconcile and bring all things together in your name. 
I lift this up in the name of Jesus. Amen.